This is Bill Chamberlain from the Popular Materials Department with another special edition of the Popmatic Podcast. I'm pleased to present a special interview with the veteran director of photography, Victor J. Kemper. Among Mr. Kemper's many film credits, Dog Day Afternoon, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, and also the late Michael Crichton's Coma, which the library will show as part of its Movies at Main series. So join us Thursday, March 12th, at 5.45 p.m. at the Main Library downtown Nashville in the auditorium. We talked to Mr. Kemper from his home in California, so let's get to the interview. Mr. Kemper, what does a cinematographer or director of photography do? If you hadn't asked that question, I would have offered an answer anyway, because it is one of the banes of the cinematographers that so few people understand the importance of a cinematographer's job and his relationship not only to the entire industry but to the people he works with. His job basically is to see that the image on the screen fits the script, satisfies the director's needs, and makes the audience unaware of the of the cinematography. We don't want to create something that takes the attention from the story to the picture. Making beautiful pictures is easy enough, but if they're so so beautiful and well done that they distract the audience to say, oh, gee, did you see that shot? Isn't that wonderful looking? And suddenly they miss half the dialogue. So understand that the importance is to do the work so that the picture matches every requirement of of the film. Secondly, the cinematographer is in charge of the entire crew that's working on on the floor, be it exterior or in a set. And sometimes that's up to 60 people that you controlling during the shoot. Thirdly, you have to pick the lenses for the camera. You have to know which lens will suit this particular scene the most. You have to have a rapport with the director. And that rapport, I even liken to a marriage. And I've had a lot of temporary marriages in my day. But that relationship, the tighter it is and the better it is and the the, uh, more comfortable it is, makes for not only happy working conditions, but all of that relates onto the screen. Somehow, when things are going smoothly, it just makes a, a better-looking movie, and, and I think the audience really appreciates that without knowing where it comes from. The cinematographer is responsible for the camera moves. He's got to know where to put the camera. He's got to know when to use a dolly and when not to use a dolly. There, there are just so many aspects to the job, and it's full-time. When a cinematographer is working, lighting a set, getting prepared to shoot, everyone else is, except for the crew, the electricians and the grips, everyone else is taking off. The director goes into his motorhome and takes a little nap. The actors are in their dressing rooms or out in the yard having a smoke or whatever, and we do our work. Then when they call them on the set to work, the cinematographer can't leave the set. He still has to be there to be sure that the camera movement and position and relationship to the actors is as it was supposed to be. So it's truly a full-time job, so much so that it's even hard to take a, a bathroom break when you have to. And that's, uh, that's one of the uh, toughest parts of being a cinematographer. When did your interest in cinematography start and how did you begin? Well, interest in cinematography developed in the uh, middle 50s. I know that sounds strange, but as a kid, I was never a moviegoer. I knew very little about movies. I might have gone on a 
Saturday morning with a couple of friends to see the, the westerns and when they had double features and cartoons and all of that and it was kind of a, a day out and it only cost a nickel to get in so that was <laughs> that was easy but I really knew nothing about film because I always wanted to be an engineer and I in fact wound up being a television engineer got interested in videotape in 1954 Ampex Corporation developed videotape they announced this first two-inch iron oxide tape and it was quite a revolution and uh, as we we know what it's come to today but it was the first time they could record a video image on any medium and and reproject it or re reshow it on a television screen and I asked my boss at the television station I asked him if he would send me to Redwood City California to take the free course that Ampex was giving to train engineers in the use of and operation of the videotape recorder and he turned me down. He said, I'm not interested in investing that kind of money in new equipment that nobody knows anything about. I said, but don't you understand the future possibilities of this thing? And he said, I don't care about that. I've got a television station to run. I said, then give me, give me a couple of weeks leave and I'll go at my own expense. That's how much faith I had in, in, in creating this image, this new kind of image that no one ever heard of before. Well, he said, if you do that, you're fired. And I did that, and I was fired. And I came back to New York, New Jersey. Most of the work I did was in New York. And I immediately got work because the television stations and even the independent commercial producers were very excited about videotape. And the New York Times pronounced, film is dead. This is back now in 1954. And, of course, that made a big stir in the film industry. And I had a lot of friends who were in the, in the film industry, but I never really worked with them. And they all came to me and said, gee, can you teach us something about videotape thing? And can spend some time at your studio and, and learn about cameras? And they were doing then what film people are doing now. They're trying to learn about the new medium, which has now become digital, but it's the same process. And I ultimately went to work for a, a commercial producer, and they they hired me because they were buying a videotape recorder. Then I had to join the union that was controlling their shop, and I became a union member. And it was a film union. It was the cinematographers local in New York. I'll, I'll make a long story short. They sold the business. The people who bought it didn't want to be in videotape. They saw no future in it whatsoever. So another fellow who was a director and myself, we raised money. We bought all the equipment from the TV station. We rented a studio up in New York at 109th Street and 5th Avenue, and we started to run a videotape commercial company. The guy who loaned us the money had a heart attack, and we got all involved with him and his wife and whatnot. She had the sheriff come and put a lock on the door, and we were in the middle of producing commercials, and, and the advertising agencies were really upset because we couldn't deliver the product to them, and ultimately that business closed down. In return for teaching all of the cameramen who worked the, the film company for, and I had been helping them, teaching them about video and television cameras, they heard about my company closing, and they all called me, every one of them, there were seven of them, and they all offered, if I was interested, to let me work with them as an assistant cameraman and learn the film business. That was in return for me teaching them about the video business. So... Being nice every once in a while does pay off. And it was 19, around 1955 when I 
started to work as an assistant cameraman. And I, from assistant cameraman, I went to camera operator and ultimately to cinematographer. And I shot my first feature in 1969. And it was, it was Husbands with John Cassavetes directing. That, that's how I got into the film business. How did you go about getting the job on Husbands? Um, how did I get the job? When I was working as a camera operator, it was for a few directors who knew John very well. You know, they have their own circle of friendship, and they evidently gave me high recommendations with John. And John was a renegade, and he loved to try new things and new people. And from what they told him about me, excited him to the point where he wanted to try me on this film and give me my first shot. And there I was. Suddenly, I was cinematographer on, a, on what became a very big movie budget-wise, and I had to learn, I had to learn from scratch. And if I may, there's one anecdote that comes with that. First day, the first day on the shooting set, it was a stage, and it was a, uh, a men's room, and it was painted all black, and the, the actors were all going to a funeral that day. They walked into this black room to rehearse. They were already in their costumes, black, long black suit overcoats because it was winter, black walls. The only thing white were the, the sinks and the commode. Everything else was black. Now, this was a brainstorm of John's. So when John came on the set, and he wished me good luck, you know, my first time out, and I said to him, John, would you please tell me how you, how you expect me to light this set with it all black, and the sinks and the commodes are, are the only thing white, and their faces were the only other thing that were were light-colored. Everything else was black. And he said very simply to me, you're the cinematographer, I'm the director. You figure it out. And he walked away. And that's how I got thrown in headfirst into the steaming hot water. From then on, my relationship with him was first class. It was a film that was supposed to be six weeks in New York and five weeks in London, and it exactly doubled the schedule. We spent 12 weeks in New York and 10 in London, and the budget, budget went berserk. But John was known for that. He was more interested in getting what he wanted to make the film right than uh, worrying about the, the dollars spent. Very unusual. Certainly don't get away with it much these days. You worked on Elia Kazan's final movie, The Last Tycoon. What was your working relationship with him? He was a gem. He was a sweetheart. I loved him to death. And he, he was a ideal for a cinematographer to work with a director he's not the only one uh, my first film with john cassavetes was the same he said look i'm a director i'm not a i'm not a photographer i'm not a cinematographer you do you do your job and i'll do my job and we'll only talk when we have a problem or a concern and that was the relationship throughout the film i still was living in new jersey but shooting in california and my family and had moved out with me for the duration of the film, staying in a in a rental condo near the studio. They had tennis courts there, and Kazan was a tennis player, and so was I. Kazan would always rap when he finished what he promised to do. Like uh, on a Monday, at the end of the day, the assistant director would ask him, what would you like to shoot tomorrow, Mr. Kazan? And he would say, okay, I'd like to do scene three, five, seven, and nine. The assistant director would usually say, well, that sounds like more than we can do in a day, he said. I didn't say that we could or couldn't do it. He asked me what I would like to shoot. He said, I would like to shoot three, five, seven, and nine. And we'd come in the next day, and we'd start to shoot. 
and he was very well, very prepared because he was an actor's director. His actors knew exactly what they had to do, and he got it from them. And we, and because I worked relatively quickly, we finished much sooner than the assistant director would have imagined. So very often at four o'clock or four thirty, Kazan was done with the day's work, and of course the producers and the and the production manager were all excited. Oh my God, we can we can get ahead here. We can shoot something from tomorrow's schedule. And he would say, no way. You asked me what I could do. I told you what we could do. It's done, and now I'm going home. And that's the way he operated. He gave them what he promised, but we all had to be there for him. We couldn't, you know, we couldn't slack off or, or, or have serious problems that we couldn't overcome. We had to really uh, shoot, from, shoot from the hip, so to speak. But when he left at 4 o'clock, he didn't go home. He went to my condo and was already in his tennis clothes when I got home because I had to stay a while to, to light the first scene for the next day. And I see his, my wife's giving him a, a martini, and he's sitting on this, laying actually on the sofa, sipping the martini, waiting for me to come home and play tennis. And how's that for a relationship? I, I actually cried when he died because I don't think I was ever moved quite that much by a, a director that I worked with because he was just so so bright and and he just knew exactly what the feeling should be of any scene and he knew how to convey that to the actors and that's that's such a wonderful thing in a director and and there aren't many who can really do that you worked with a few first-time directors like tim burton on peewee's big adventure is there a different way you have to work with a first-timer uh yes you you kind of you have to be very patient a first-time director who has just come out of school, and Tim, Tim was an example, they usually have, because they get hired, it really boosts their ego. And they come on the set thinking they really know everything about filmmaking. Otherwise, Universal wouldn't have hired them. They almost resent an experienced cinematographer because we're there to help them. And when we offer the help, they take the wrong attitude. They think oh, this guy's trying to show me up or he's trying to take my job away. And it's exactly the opposite. I mean, we're there to support the, the director. He's the boss. So the younger guys are always a little more difficult to deal with because, you know, they want to do it their way and they, they want, don't want to be dissuaded, even if you have, you have a better way. And sometimes they don't even listen. And it took, uh, in the case of Tim, it took about two weeks before he trusted me. And I think ultimately got to like me a little bit because he knew that I was there for the same reason as he, to make the picture good. You mentioned earlier that you like to work fast. You worked with Sidney Lumet on Dog Day Afternoon, and everything I've read about him is how quick he works. Is it safe to assume you two got along? We, we got along great. He had his hands full on that job with the actors, but he was great, and I thought I worked fast. <laughs> I, had, I had a little trouble keeping up with him sometimes. He really, he did have a reputation for working fast. He came out of live television. And in live television, you don't have a second shot. It's got to be right the first time. So he would hustle everybody and get as many rehearsals in as he could before before we actually rolled. Everything was pretty well organized and on track before anybody said roll the cameras. Criterion is going to release the Friends of Eddie Coyle on DVD. Will you be assisting? I just got a, this letter from Criterion. They asked me if I would be interested in being part of the, the DVD. I haven't responded yet because I had to work a few other kinks out. 
but I will respond that I am interested. And unfortunately, they're in New York and I'm in California. So I'm going to plead with them to allow me to be part of the, the remastering for the color balance and, and lighting because very often in remastering the film for DVD, they make some things that should be dark, they make them too bright, sometimes they make them too dark. And they have no way of knowing what the intent of the director and cinematographer were when we shot it. I mean, they take films that are 30, 40 years old now and, and restore them for DVD. And now they're going to be doing it for Blu-ray, the HD. And it's going to be more critical that the creators of the image are part of that so that the image looks like it's supposed to. It's very hard for a, a person 30 years later who was probably very much younger than the director or cinematographer to sit in a, in a dark suite with all this electronic gear and look at the TV screen and have to guess at what it should look like on the big screen. It's a tough job. And I, we have to plead with the producers to allow us to do that, and we don't charge for that time. You worked with veteran director Robert Wise on the film Audrey Rose. What was your working relationship with him? Oh, it was wonderful. We, we remained friends up until his death, actually. We saw each other socially. And we went to functions regularly. That relationship was a solid one, and, and it, was, it was a wonderful one. And he's one of the nicest people I've ever met in, in the film industry. During the shoot, he had this little girl. Her name was Susan Swift. She was the girl in the story. Uh, and Susan and I are still friends to this day. She's now grown up and has seven children and, and uh, gave up, she gave up acting as well. And she became a lawyer. You've worked on other horror films such as Magic and The Eyes of Laura Mars. Do you approach the horror genre differently? Yes, absolutely. And the, the difference is, um, is in the choice of lighting and camera moves. And I don't think a lot of people may not understand that those are subtle things that, again, the audience isn't supposed to know why they're feeling what they're feeling. But they're feeling it because of the way we move the camera. If you want to be scary and sneaky, you usually move it slowly and kind of a, a gentle movement. And that generally means that something bad is about to happen. You know, you're sneaking up on, on, on something that's going to be scary. And on the other hand, if you're doing a, a dramatic or romantic story, use a different kind of lighting, a different kind of camera move. And, you know, with the scary stuff, by the way, shadows are important. You have to introduce shadows into the film because somehow that triggers the, the, the human mind when they're watching a film, again, that something is eerie, something is weird going on. So those are all things that, that we have to do consciously, but we hope that the, it will be an unconscious cause to the audience and that, that it works and they're thrilled with what they see. In an interview, the director, Arthur Hiller, once said the only problem he had on the movie The Hospital was keeping up with George C. Scott. Did you have any trouble keeping up with Mr. Scott? No, no. He was great. He was a great friend, and he loved to, he loved to kid around. He, he was an old-school actor. I'm glad you brought up George Scott, because that's not the only film I did with him either. He was a heavy drinker, and he always knew his lines, and he was not a uh, method actor. He did not come from that school. He came in. In fact, most of the actors I worked with on The Last Tycoon would, from, his, from George C. Scott's school, whatever that school was, 
they knew their lines. They came in, and they always said, we're called actors because that's what we do. We act. We say the lines, but we put feeling into them, and that's what we do. We don't have to have a reason for looking over somewhere. We don't have to have a motivation to do something. We act. And that is a very old school idea because you know today it's quite different. The actors have to be motivated for every single thing they do or say. George C. Scott was the epitome of that old school. And he had no patience whatsoever if when he came on the set, everybody wasn't ready to go and did not want to be interrupted by the director or the assistant director or anything else asking why he, why did you look over in that corner? That, uh, that didn't look great. And then he said, it felt great to me. And the director would say, well, how about doing another one? He says, well, how was the rest of the take? Was it okay? And the director would say, yes, it was okay. I'd just like to try something else. George says, no, if it was okay, that's it. Let's move on. Very tough about that. So some directors don't like that at all. I mean, they always want to work with the good actors, but then they don't want to take the consequences when the actors don't always cooperate. I find that a, a very strange thing, but it's not unusual. But George was one of a kind, and he was great. What challenges did you have filming on ice in the movie Slapshot? Well, the challenges of filming on ice, which I had never done before, were not not insurmountable because obviously we made it work. But the problem the problem is that we had professional hockey players, except for the actors, you know, the key people. And they just skate full bore all the time and have very little patience if you're in their way on the ice. And they'll just knock you over if you're where they want to be. So <laughs> that was a little tough because I spent a lot of time on my butt on the ice. And they did intentionally, good-naturedly, but intentionally. So that was a major challenge. We, You know, you can't stand with without skates on the ice because your feet just get too cold. The cold comes up through the soles of your shoes. And so we were all on skates, and the director and George Roy Hill was the director and we'd be talking around with the, with the actors and the director and myself and maybe the assistant director. And these three, three brothers, the handsome brothers, and they would come skating down. And you know how sometimes uh, they give you the feeling that they're like an elephant walking their arms and swinging back and forth as they skate. And they're just, just coming down nice and gently. And just as they pass us, one of them would stick the... the would, would push his hockey stick between us and the four of us or three of us whatever was there at that moment would go down like rocks and they would skate off laughing and once in a while somebody gets hurt a little bit but those guys were tough to deal with they're tough guys you worked with the late great paul newman on slapshot any special memories uh yeah his uh his beer drinking contest with the director george royal the two of them were buddies when they got finished shooting for the day, they they would have contests, see how many beers they could chug along in any given time, you know. Uh, they were like kids. It was great. <laughs> but uh, Paul, Paul was terrific, very gentle man, very friendly, always uh, considerate of everyone else, and never trying to give you the impression that he knows more than you do about filmmaking. No, he, he was a good guy. How do you go about choosing a project? Well, a couple there were a few that I actually wanted to do, you know, up front. But the trick is 
getting access to the script. That's where an agent comes in handy. Now, agents don't really get people their jobs. What agents do is get you the contact, and then you've got to get the jobs with the director and the producer based on an interview. You ultimately have to meet with these people, and if the agent can get you the script and have it sent to you and you have a chance to read it and then go to a meeting, you better know what that script's about before you, before you go through that door. Because when you do, you can almost always nail the job and, and wind up shooting a film. But if, you're not, if you don't remember what's in that script or you don't have a feel for it or you give an indication that in some ways you don't think the script is so hot, which is a death, for sure, sudden death, you might as well not go in. But if you really don't think the script should be shot, then you shouldn't be interviewing for the job because it shows somehow people sense when you either don't like the script or you don't understand the script. So all of these things are important in, in developing your foot in the door kind of thing. Is there one film you've done that has given you the most satisfaction? Well, there's a couple for different reasons. Um, the Eyes of Laura Mars has gave me exceptional satisfaction because of the way we designed the handheld shots that were what was seen in the Eyes of Laura Mars, uh, those visions that she had that her girls were being her models were being uh, killed. Those shots were really not only fun to do, but uh, very satisfying to see on the screen. And I had a great camera operator on that on that show, and he could he could make impeccable shots exactly as we wanted them to be. We were very rarely, and they were handheld, so it was hard to keep doing them over and over. But he very rarely had to reshoot a shot. Always got always got it the first time, but. That, that was particularly satisfying in the, in the end result. Uh, when that movie came together, I was very proud of and uh, happy with the uh, cinematography. Another one was Magic. Magic gave me the opportunity to do things uh, very low-key, very quiet. And that's part of that quiet and slow-moving camera uh, that I was talking about when you're doing eerie or scary kind of uh, films. So there's a case where I was able to use that. And same in Laura Mars, where you could lose low-level light, lots of shadows, careful, gentle camera movement. What is your feeling on digital video, which seems to be taking over cinematography? Well, it isn't yet taking over cinematography. It may sound like it from the press. Digital, I have to tell you, I think the digital uh, is, is sensational. There is so much you can do by converting a film image to a digital, we call it a digital intermediate, and manipulating it. You have more color control, more contrast control. It's so easy to fix problems that you otherwise would have had to reshoot on film. They can be fixed now by editing digitally, and I think it's fantastic. The problem still with digital cinematography is that there is no strictly digital camera yet that can even approach the quality of motion picture film. And that is the struggle that's going on right now. Films are being shot digitally, and, they, and some of them are very good. And the audience, there's no way the audience would ever tell that a digitally shot motion picture was not done on film. It's that good in the theaters and the reason is that in most theaters, the, uh, the maintenance of projectors and projection quality 
is not consistent, you know, all over the country or all over the world. So uh, the level is not what it should be. And we strive, as cinematographers, we all strive for perfection. And we would prefer, in any case, to shoot on film. And many, many pictures are still being done that way. I think most television is moving quickly to, to digi because, after all, it is a video medium and it's very, very well-suited and perfectly suited, in fact, for television. But film will be disappearing. There's no question about it. But it's not disappearing in a moment. You know, it's going to be a while. It's like when the New York Times said film is dead back in 1955. You've just been listening to an interview with Victor J. Kemper. If you would like to hear more, come Thursday, March 12th at 5.45 p.m. at the Main Library downtown Nashville as Victor J. Kemper introduces the movie Coma through a specially recorded interview. Thank you, and I hope to see you at the movies.